It's pretty well accepted that we have a housing affordability problem in Australia. In fact, many say it's not a problem, it's a crisis, and it's not limited to home ownership. In the second half of 2021, the federal government conducted an inquiry into housing affordability and supply in Australia. The Felinski report containing the inquiry's findings was released in March. One thing that's certain is that this is a complex issue involving three levels of government, the private sector, individuals with varying needs, and a great deal of conflicted opinion and interest to boot. Today, we're having a look at the conclusions and recommendations containing that report. Is it an oversimplified whitewash or a genuine attempt to tackle the big issues? Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as Download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? The elephant in the room.com.au. To quote from the introduction of the Felinski report, the following report highlights some practical ways that a federal government can cut the Gordian knot of oppressive regulation, muddle-headed central planning, officious big state regulation and the skinning of new home buyers via a myriad of taxes and charges designed to raise funds, not living standards. That's a pretty good statement and it gives me some confidence with what I'm going to read when I read that report. There were 160 submissions that were made to the inquiry into housing affordability and supply in Australia, and the report actually does make for interesting reading. So let's kick off by understanding, I guess, what what's meant by housing affordability. What did what did you pick up from that, Chris? Look, it's a funny one, right? Like, I mean, you can't assume that you know living in a blue chip suburb with a 600 square north facing block. Um, one of the most prestige parts of a capital city is ever going to be affordable for someone on a minimum wage or a medium wage, etc. I mean, my view of housing affordability, is there an option for lots of different parts of society to live somewhere that they feel safe, secure, stable, um, they feel, you know, a sense of achievement um, and that they, you know, can feel inspired to stay in a city? And I think the issue we have in in our capital cities is that sometimes, you know, for families or for different demographics, uh, even key workers and, you know, lower incomes, etc., there's not a viable housing solution because house prices and apartments are just saying house prices generally are just unaffordable, right? And what you're doing is you're creating a disconnect in the city. People love the city from a lifestyle point of view. They're happy. They love their job. But when they look at their shelter and their need for housing is it's a disconnect and that's not achievable. And, um, the, the only way it is achievable is if they move three hours from the city and then you've got lifestyle impacts. So that's what I think housing affordability is the big issue is that um, there's not a solution. And so what ends up happening is the city starts to become um, unenticing and you start basically blowing up the city because people start leaving. And you can see this in, in Sydney. People have been leaving Sydney for a long time because um, they, they grow. there's a growing discon, um, discontent, I guess, with the options available from a property point of view. And so that's why I think housing unaffordability is such a big issue is because it really marginalised society. You've got people who do really well who are in the market and people who aren't in the market and future generations who are basically getting left behind. And um, that to me is what housing affordability is, is a viable 
solution that you really actually can aspire to. So it's commonly accepted. It's commonly accepted. Um, you know, the affordability argument is commonly accepted around first home buyers. You know, everyone understands. Oh, it's really hard to buy a property. It's really hard to save for deposit. But actually, affordability of a mortgage for existing homeowners. That's a, that's a concept as well. Also, as well as a rental and social affordable housing sectors that need to be included in the conversation. Home ownership is declining. You know, it over the past twenty years, there's um, you know dramatic rise in the average age of first home buyers. There's a decline of 70% of Australians owning their own home down to 66%. And, you know, and I think the young cohort, it's sort of obvious because it takes more time to save up to buy your first home. So therefore the average age of buying a first home is going to go up. But interestingly enough, people entering retirement, 50 to 54, which is bloody young, I say to retire. But anyway, that that cohort of um, home ownership number is basically down 6.6% over the last 20 years. So that means that there's more people entering retirement not owning their own home. And that is an alarming, and that's obviously going to increase over time as less people can afford to buy property. But also the proportion of those unmortgaged is also declining. So, and it doesn't seem like a lot. It's gone from 32.1% in 1996 down to 31% in 2016. But certainly it shows a bit of a trend and it, I guess it's worrying to a lot of quarters. I think that also that lack of affordable housing is also increasingly being discussed in terms of the impact on the overall economy. So, you know, you talk about long commutes in urban areas, inability to recruit staff in some regional areas, economic productivity. So, you know, in areas suffering from high levels of mortgage rent stress, you know, long-term demands in the welfare system, growing inequality and all the rest of it. So it's, there's, you know, it's, it's quite well accepted that it's a problem. But it's sort of interesting that this report actually identifies two tribes in the Australian housing policy arena. And I don't know, what did you think of that idea of the two tribes, Chris? Yeah, and I think, I mean, just to second your point around affordability, it's so deeper than uh, a lot of people who have got a property, they sort of switch off, right? Because you've, you know, you focused on your own little sort of house and most mm. voters have actually got property. You know, we talk here, it's, you know, two in three have got an asset. Um, and, you know, you can see the government's always incentivized to win their votes rather than the people trying to enter the market, which is only a small cohort. And they do things for them. But ultimately, you know, there's a huge conflict of interest, which is talked about lots in the report, you know, in terms of what's good for the government's. Uh, and what's good for society aren't necessarily linked. Um, and there's got to be a, you know, compromises made to the government's financials to in order to solve some of these problems. I mean, I think some of this <laughs> is, is sort of um, segues into this. I mean, the first tribe is obviously around the tax system. You know, the reason we have all these problems is because, you know, we don't have a negative gearing and that we have a CGT discount on the home and that it's CG discount of 50% and, um, you know, our stamp duty and our land tax and, so they always just focus on fixing those problems. We all know it's obviously much greater than that. Um, the second tribe was, you know, it's all about supply, right? You know, we need to mm. release land. Um, why have we got all these NIMBYs, you know, build up in the middle suburbs, et cetera. And we all know that's not so simple as well. And so I think that um, is sort of what this report was sort of highlighting is it's a mixture of all these different um, ideas and putting them together will will hopefully get us further towards the solution, but I don't think it's either or, you know, I think it's both, you know, changes to lots of different things will be what, you know, ultimately, and things like lending as well, like it was talked about in the report, but, you know, 
a lot of the people who are in the property market talk about how lending is one of the biggest enablers of how much money you can borrow and the price of that drives almost the market more than anything else. And um, that's not really talked about too much in the report, which I was thought was quite surprising. Yeah, it, it didn't. Um, do you know do too much in that area but it did talk about interest rates and I thought that was interesting too there was one actual quote that I'm I'm going to um, quote which I just thought was interesting it's they said basically said the price of a house has an impact on the measure of affordability it's only half the story if the price of a house doubles the interest rates halve the affordability of the home has not changed and I remember watching Alan Kohler on the on the ABC News one night saying we don't have an affordability crisis in this property in this country the problem is that houses are too affordable because of low interest rates i.e that the cost of borrowing is is lower but this is the quote that i thought was interesting it says that is why calls for the reserve bank of australia to raise interest rates to lower the house prices are probably one of the most absurd ideas in australian public policy and i thought that was such an interesting quote because the fact is, we know a lot of economists, it's almost like just a lazy thing to say, oh, it, rising interest rates will rise prices. But I think Stuart Weems has recently published on this, the Kook has recently published on this, that there's some others I, that can't think of the top of my head have been talking about, guys, you've got to realise it actually is not a strong correlation between rising interest rates and rising prices. So I thought that that was just a very interesting quote. Um, yeah, Chris Joy did a, um, he did a fight with Steve Keen on uh, Financial Advisor podcast and um, you know, he, he referenced, you know, the housing affordability issues that, you know, the percentage of income that's actually used for mortgage repayments is at all-time lows, you know. And housing affordability for people who have got housing is is actually quite cheap because credit is mm. cheap. You know, that's why we've had a housing boom is that people said, well, I've got a million-dollar mortgage or 500 grand. Um, I'm willing to take on an extra 500 to upgrade my home because rates are low. And so I wasn't stressed at a million because – and so, yeah, absolutely, I think the – the cost of credit has a huge impact on housing affordability. You know, if interest rates were 6 or 7%, current homeowners would be super stressed because it'd be really expensive to pay their mortgages, right? Um, but when rates are mm. low, it, it's not that's not the thing that's um, driving housing unaffordability at the moment. It's really for those people that are marginalised. It's the the first home buyers who are the people buying and the, having to upgrade in this current market and take on big debts. They're the ones that it's really or, – or unable to buy because of the deposit hurdles, et cetera – um, they're the ones that are, are really struggling with housing unaffordability. And that's the thing. I mean, the largest, you know, barred entry for young Australians is saving the deposit. And um, the report does also look into the levies and taxes that add to construction costs, which is really interesting because what I found is that there were various estimates of the proportion of the cost of a new build, like whether it be an apartment or a house, various estimates of the proportion of that or the a dollar figure on average of the taxes because you've effectively got like four layers of taxes that are going into that. Um and one of the quotes is, in short, if you wanted to cut the price of new homes as much in much of Australia could do so, so by simply removing taxes and levies. Um, and, you know, and also, so, you know, that's another aspect of the tax is that that's not tax free for investors. That's actually the government once again benefiting from rising house prices. Um, and we benefit when the government benefits as well. We have to remember also that the taxes that we actually pay to the government to run the country are lower if they're, if we are getting taxed in other ways. Our income tax, I should say, is lower if we are getting taxed in multiple different ways. So much for uh, GST simplifying the whole tax system. Them, as it was promised to us back in the uh, in the nineties, um, but 
There is a huge amount of complexity in this issue, and a lot of it is because of the three layers of government with some overlapping of responsibilities and, as it appears and has been highlighted throughout the report, very little coordination. And that's got the inefficiencies of that has got to be adding cost anyway. Yeah, there's, we've spoken about this, you know, how many episodes we've done 200 plus, right? We've spoken mm. about the the taxes that are um, accumulated and all the different taxes in the development, the GST, the stamp duty, the land tax, the profits of the development company, blah, 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 blah. It goes on and on and on. And that's all factored into the price of that property, that new property. And that's why governments love people buying new properties. They make a hell of a lot of money. They support a construction industry and they make a lot of taxes. And yeah, they give you a 10,000 grant or a free stamp duty. Um, I saw in, in Victoria, they were like, if you buy a new apartment in the city between now and April or something, there's no stamp duty or some some benefit. And I was like, that was so targeted at, you know, new property in the city that we all know is not a great investment, but the government's just doing an easy cash grab. You know, they're saying, don't pay stamp duty on that, but we're going to make a lot more money on the back end. And so all these things come <laughs> out. Um, and obviously, um, I think this is one of the biggest elephants in the room around property prices. If you really wanted to solve this, you could allow developers to develop land and to develop buildings much cheaper. And Yes, that would upset um, the house prices and the wealth effect in lots of suburbs, in areas where you build a lot more. But ultimately, that's a solution they could make. But that's just too much money in that for them. Um, and, you know, developers are calling for a lot of this stuff. You know, you've seen, um, mm. you know, they want to be able to produce a better product, um, you know, cheaper. You know, if it's cost more money, there's only a limit what people can pay. So they have to make cutbacks in terms of building materials and all that sort of stuff. Um, and we all know the development industry, they've had a pretty bad um, time in the last few years because of the building issues that have come out, but you can see they've had a pretty bad time in the last two years with you know inflation and building costs and not being able to get access to staff and wage increases and in lots of construction companies having really tough time, fixed price contracts and um, going under pro build. There was another one in Queensland last week. So um, yeah, I think this is one of the biggest things that need to be sorted out is is actual plan on releasing supply and encourage, make it much easier for developers to make profits and, and to actually start to produce this stuff. Which is sort of bizarre, isn't it? Because, of course, you know, when you do read through some of these submissions, it smacks of self-interest, but at the same time there's smacks of common sense. And I, I guess wading through all of that is, is, a, is a real challenge. And then just to, to, I guess, to define the different roles or different levels of government at a very high level, local and state and territory governments are generally responsible for areas of land release, planning, zoning, facilitating the delivery of housing services, while the Australian government, the federal government, is also responsible for some aspects of delivery and funding of housing services and assistance. So there's a little bit of a crossover. And and we'll get to the recommendations in a moment, but so a lot of the recommendations focus on the the federal government incentivizing the state governments to actually release supply. So, you know, the idea behind all this is that they're pointing the finger at state and territory governments and local governments as well, that planning restrictions are one of the cause of the affordability crisis. And then econometric analysis has shown in some places of the country, uh, those planning restrictions are responsible for 67% of the cost of housing. So that's an interesting one. Um, but, of course, increasing supply is easy to say, but it does certainly appear to be quite hard to do, you know, especially for the federal government, given what we just said, that they're not necessarily involved in planning and releasing and, and rezoning and all those 
those sort of enabling type functions. Yeah, I think there's always the you want to get into power um, and you're a local politician and what's going to not get you in power is upsetting the locals because um, they've got to vote for you. And this is where it all just falls down. You know, the NIMBY mentality won't vote for the person that's got big picture ideas on the future of Australia. And if that involves changing their suburb and their local um, pocket, um, then they're not going to get in power. And so this is where it all sort of falls down. You know, reality is if you thought common sense, if we had, uh, you know, one government that sort of um, then they could potentially come in and say, right, Northern Beach is in Sydney. Uh, a lot of people want to live there. There's a lot of land there. What land's great to be cut up and divided to apartments and townhouses? Well, these pockets, because of the topography and the location, let's, you know, change the zoning there. But, you know, the person in the local government that wants to change that um, isn't going to get in power, right? Because everyone wants to protect their, their own little pot, pot of land. And so I think density does make so much sense, but actually then implementing it, um, it's easy to do that in, you know, areas where... Um, you know, there's relaxed planning controls already, right? And so what you see is in greenfield estates, high-rise apartments, in areas where people want to cut up their land and build townhouses, you know, in the middle and outer rings, people think that that creates, um, actually improves their uh, value of their land because they could sell it to a developer. What they don't realise is it actually deteriorates the suburb over the longer term and it actually gets, um, you'll get less price growth because if you get a street of, 50 houses where no one can ever knock down a house. When you come back in 10 years' time, that and that's one of the only streets that does that, that'll be more desirable, that street, because it's one of the only streets that offers, you know, bigger mm. blocks and older houses, right? But if if you live in a street where everyone's knocking down and build townhouses, over time, people say, hang on a sec, why would I want to live here? You know, there's way many more more cars, they've got a lot more renters, investors, um, and, you know, the house prices don't grow as much. Um, you know, I think in the Shire, there's already, there was some reports I was reading last week where, you know, certain suburbs have got these problems where, you know, lots of people are building townhouses. And so density and losing planning controls and, you know, building more housing solutions um, in around the city makes a lot of sense. It's just how do you actually practically do that um, at a suburb level? So if we went quickly run through the 16 yeah. recommendations in the report, that's the first yeah. one is density. And, and But not top-down imposition, um, you know, those that benefit the most should bear the cost, you know, because at the moment there sort of seems to be a bit of asymmetry around that. You know, tackling the taxes, rewarding communities with more infrastructure, those sorts of initiatives are sort of underneath that recommendation. The second one is to loosen planning restrictions. So this is, you know, along the lines of what you're just saying there, the whole NIMBY, NIMBYism, it's uh, it's tough and it's not very popular. But uh, the recommendations in the report are that federal government should incentivise and support state and local governments to have better planning and policy. And the thing is that with good planning, loosening restrictions can actually have great outcomes. Um, but, you know, it, I thought there was a couple of interesting quotes in here. You know, Mervac stated that rezonings in New South Wales are now taking in excess of seven years and the development yeah. approvals for civil works are taking another 18 months or two years. So that's... That's, I mean, and once again, you go, is that self-interest? They're whinging about it. They're the ones profiting. Or is it that actually they are able to better deliver if this is loosened? And and I don't have an answer to that. I'm just sort of putting it out there. That So basically, Mervac saying it takes nine years. Um, Stockland are saying anywhere from five to ten years to get rezoned. Um, and then you need a year for development approval. And the, the, the problem is with the rezoning is that whoever owned the, the land before the zoning makes the most amount of money through the rezoning process you know that that's a challenge there as well so you've got to sort of in some ways democratize 
<laughs> you know, who's making the money? And I guess if there's if they're taking a huge risk and sitting on it for 10 years, then I guess it's fair that they make the money. You know, maybe if you loosen it up, it, it's actually there's less money to be made. I don't know the answer to that because I'm not an economist in this area. But It's a really know. good point. Like the time frames to get the approval to do the build, um, you know, Shane Gear, who we're trying to get on the podcast, he's very vocal around that. That's what's causing us to have a really housing solution is just – it's too much risk to buy that land to then wait two years to get potential get DA approval mm. and to potentially the market could move. Why would you take that risk? And so the the rules around planning are, are a big part of it. I mean, you know, an ideal sort of utopia would be, you know, uh, a top-down level that says, right, these are the pockets that make the most sense to knock down houses um, because they're close to the main roads, they're close to the amenity. And so these streets will have to change and they're going to have to change to four or five levels, right? And the people who own those houses are going to get a massive uplift because now they can sell it to developers and make a lot of money, right? And capturing that value, so they don't make all that in profit, there's some type of value exchange. Look, you can now force, like kind of force acquisition with a freeway. You know, you force acquisition them for developers um, and there's some type of benefit for them um, in terms of the value exchange. I think that makes sense and a very clear trying to create. But if you look at the Greater Sydney Plan, it's quite, um, you know, quite funny really when you look at it. Like the people that, you know, where people most want to live, they're building the least amount of housing. And where people least want to live, they build the most amount of housing. And so it's very much skewed to, you know, the areas that are more affordable. And um, I don't think it's really where the places are the most desirable. And so it's not really solving the housing affordability issue. It's just creating more supply where potentially there's not an undersupply of stock anyway. You know, there's there's the ability to do that today. It's just that developers haven't got enough demand to build that much of housing out there. They're just releasing it slowly based on demand. So, um, yeah, density and all those planning rules. I'm not saying I'm an expert in it at all, but, you know, it doesn't take a rocket science to figure out that that's one of the biggest causes of, of these issues. There actually was one example in the report. It was an example, a site on Chapel Street, South Yarra, and it was originally sold um, for $20 million with zoning for 13 stories. And then uh, I think six months later, it was rezoned for, for 31 stories and then sold for $56 million. So it's one piece of dirt goes from being worth $20 million to worth $56 million, um, because you went from 13 to 31 stories. So... It's quite interesting that that just shows exactly that the value of the land changes dramatically with zoning. Yeah, there's one pocket in really. um, in in Sydney near Neutral Bay, or not maybe Neutral Bay, more like on the other side, like Wollstonecrafts or Waverton. There's a couple of streets, thirty houses have sort of banded together, and they're selling it to a developer, and it's near other apartment blocks. And so it's a great little block of land. It's near the train line. You know, those houses probably make sense to do more density. They're banded together. They've sold it off to developers. Um, and they're getting it through council and they're going to build up higher. And, you know, more stories like that, I actually think that's a good thing, you know, um, and I think that's what we need across our cities. But it's the council coming in and saying, right, that's a pocket that's perfect. Let's put them together and let's see if we can sell them on to developers to to create more density and more options for, you know, future generations. Where does it stop, though? Because, you know, I've looked at houses that are not too far away from that that site and they are massively negatively impacted because if they're too close to it, you know, and so um, it, it's that, you know, there is a fallout there and I think that that's, Absolutely. you know, 
if someone else has benefited through that rezoning, perhaps those that are that are actually disadvantaged should be compensated in some way. I think you know, there's got to be some so, type of natural line, whether it's a train or whether it's a ro a major road mm. or you know river or or something where they say right. If we could section off that little section, the impact on surrounding properties would be minimised because there's natural barriers that sort of create a line between, you know, houses and higher density rather than, yeah, you've got a house and you look up and there's 30 storeys above you, which, well, you know, yeah. which I saw in places like Box Hill in Melbourne. I, honestly, I was shocked when I went there years ago and it did feel like mm. it wasn't something that you usually see in Australia and it was that issue you're talking about, you know, high rise yeah. overlooking a single storey house. Recommendation number three is accountability. So no more money for nothing, I like. Yeah. <laughs> Federal governments pay grants to state and local governments for delivery of more housing. And there's an assumption that more supply equals more affordability, but not of everything. And it won't solve the problem of the barista in Potts Point, you know, living in Potts Point or nurses living close to Prince of Wales Hospital, really. Because there's this idea, there's a debate about whether we are in fact under or oversupplied as well. But there's also this idea that there's these grants that have been given to local governments that haven't actually been used to build infrastructure to compensate or to add value to the people that are actually affected by these developments. So there's this whole, you know, there is money changing hands, there is incentives in the system right now, but it seems to be that there's not a lot of accountability to make sure that the money that's supposedly earmarked for certain developments, certain infrastructure or certain compensation or whatever is actually spent in that area, you know. Um, and also it's sort of interesting that, um, uh, you know, as I said, this idea, there's actually quite an argument in this report about whether we're even undersupplied. And I found that fascinating. I thought actually everyone just assumed you know, that we didn't have enough supply. But there's actually quite a number of, you know, economists are saying, oh, actually, it's not even true. And we've seen it ourselves. When you see segments of the, you know, the built environment that are losing money, you know, you can't sell it for what you paid for it. Well, clearly there's oversupply in certain areas, such as Melbourne, yeah. inner city Melbourne apartments. If you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. Between the demographics and the aspiration and desires of that demographics and their needs versus the housing stock, you know, maybe there's enough dwellings, but is that dwellings perfectly matched to what people need? I, mm. you know, studio apartments and one beds, maybe we've got too many of those. Um, and maybe we've got too many of those in areas that people don't really want to live. You know, maybe we've got an under, uh, oversupply of two beds, you know, apartments in, in, in lots of capital mm. cities. And maybe we're building more, maybe we've got an undersupply of three beds and three bed townhouses and in these type of areas. And so I think ultimately that's what's causing prices to keep, you know, going up is an undersupply of what people really want and an oversupply of what people <laughs> don't really want. And um, that's so, I absolutely think there's a, uh, a huge issue and you know you just have to talk to um, young couples and families in our capital cities and absolutely they think it's hard to get something that they really want long term you know at a price that they are willing to pay and so yeah there's ultimately yeah. A, an undersupply of the the things that we really want
the valuable stuff. The, you know, the committee concluded that those who say we're undersupplied are talking long term and those who say we are oversupplied are talking short term. So I thought that was quite interesting. And in addition, there appears to be a consensus that increasing supply of new stock won't actually have an impact on low income earners. So, um, and I think potentially that's tied in with the fact there's so many taxes that are actually bolstering up the cost of buying new um, that the low income earners aren't necessarily um, given an opportunity to buy that stock anyway. I think you'd have to have huge price decreases, you know, low income earners, to mm. even, if, even if prices stayed the same for five or six years or they fell 20%, they're still going to be really expensive. It's so far beyond what's affordable to a lot of them anyway. Um, and that's why we need some, you know, more innovative strategies on actually, you know, more affordable housing, ways for them to enter the market at cheaper prices, um, you know, more like a favour on the market um, rather than, you know, reducing prices so they can afford them. I think that's, um, it's just so far stretched already. Yeah. Now, recommendations four and five are aligned and they're around homelessness and also critical housing. Um, there's been a separate inquiry that they've just basically said those recommendations, we support them, and um, also that the federal government should help fund state and local government programs tackling crisis housing. So it's good that that's coming to the fore and becoming um, a topic, and it appears to be taken very seriously. Recommendation six is around rent-to-buy schemes. So it's suggesting the government should partner with private enterprise to create other pathways into property ownership. And, and we did, we interviewed, oh, what was his name, from Assemble Communities. God, I think that was back in 2018. Yeah. Um, it was a really interesting, um, you know, we probably should get him back and see how all that's going actually because there are, you know, but this is the initiative of private enterprise, you know, so socially aware or social, um, you know, those with conscience basically that are looking to Nightingale's another one. There's a number of these sorts of initiatives that are out there. So it's basically recommending the government support these and partner with these providers. And so that's interesting and that's um you know, who knows where this will go. These are just recommendations. And how many reports get written and nothing gets done? Look, I think that there's always going to be a limit done. on what the state governments um, can do in these sort of schemes, um, NDIS and, um, you know, if it's a rent-to-buy sort of solution, it's going to be a certain point where the government can't just do 100,000 of them, right? So, yeah, absolutely, you can sort of, you know, solve a few lives with that sort of plan. And, you know, an ideal scenario would be, for me, it's getting access to self-managed super, well, not self-managed super, superannuation funds, not just in Australia, worldwide. You've got a, you know, a growing people uh, population around the world that are aging, that are also putting money away for their retirement. And what those uh, funds, sovereign wealth funds need is a steady income stream and capital preservation for their members so they can provide those incomes. And, um, you know, good, solid rental assets, you know, for example, like property make a lot of sense. And this is where the build to rent argument needs to come in. And um, But you could do build to rent, which is... Well, well the recommendation actually is around rent yeah. to buy. I think the build to rent comes further yeah, down. Yeah, so I think with the, the build to rent, <laughs> and we'll, we'll talk about as well, but I think mm. it's very linked to rent to buy because if you could do a build to rent where someone's living in a property, they're renting it, but ultimately they've got ability to buy that property as well. So you're sort of doing both. You're giving them stable housing mm. and a solution and security and somewhere great to live, but you're also getting them to invest in the community because they ultimately want to buy in the community. And this is what Assemble sort of sort of catched on to. Um, and then they have ability to buy. So you're not just saying you're a renter for life. 
Um, you're never going to own anything. Yeah, you're mm-hmm. a renter and you've got, you can stay here as long as you want. But ultimately, if you do want to buy the property, here's the means for you to do it. And maybe there's some state government help and some federal government help. And I do think that's a really good solution um, for, you know, critical housing. And um, I'm not sure exactly all the history around social housing, et cetera. But, you know, from my understanding, you know, places in the UK had similar things a long, long time ago. Um, and, you know, and that's mm-hmm. allowed a lot of people to sort of get ahead um, you know, through, you know, the government providing this housing. So I don't think the government just going out and building these houses is going to solve the problem. You've got to sort of empower the people to sort of take ownership and and give mm. them the, the feel like they've achieved it rather than you just giving them a house to say, you know, here's somewhere to live. And I think that's that to me is a, a better longer-term solution. The recommendation seven was using super for first home buyers to uh, help them with their deposit, but not by accessing the funds as been as been touted uh, in the past, but actually using their security, which is an interesting one. There's a caveat. Uh, the implementation of this policy should depend on implementing policies to increase the supply of housing. Otherwise, an increase in households' ability to borrow would likely increase property prices. So the, it's, this, this just illustrates how bloody complicated it all is. Now, the thing, however, and this is all about removing that largest barrier for first home buyers, which is that deposit, but, you know, like, okay, it's great. You don't have to take the money out of your super, but then your super your super fund effectively guarantees is the guarantor for your um, home loan. And what happens if the bank forecloses? Like, you lose out both ways. You lose your super and you lose your property. So I guess there's there's an element of risk with this. And unfortunately, what has not been referred to in the report that I could find was any reference to what happens to housing prices when you go to sell. You know, so it's all well and good to say increase supply, get first home buyers into these sorts of properties. But what if you need to sell? And you know, and your asset is worth less than your your border, and that is a bigger question as far as I'm concerned. It's the I think honestly, I think tackling affordability in this way is even short term, to quite frankly. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that's that's maybe a side. All issue. you're going to do with this sort of thing is um, allow people like a credit card. You're going to allow people to enter the market sooner rather than later because now they don't mm. need as much deposit. And you know, for me to do this, in my view, you'd have to have some type of matching system. So you'd have to have a certain amount of deposit, and you could match that out of your super fund as a guarantee. Um, so you've got some skin in the game, you know, and mm. that have to be maybe it's a five percent deposit you need to have. The problem is you are going to create short term demand. Obviously, supply takes years and years to enter the market. So saying we're going to build some more supply tomorrow, like implementing this, pro- it's going to be a disconnect. More demand in the short term, maybe more supply in the mm. longer term, but that doesn't affect prices in the short term. So prices would go up quite dramatically, my belief, in certain pockets where a mm. lot of first-home buyers would buy because at certain price points um, where and you potentially got other changes like stamp duty and land tax. And so all this would do is increase prices way more than the, the amount of money people get access to super. Um, and so in three years' time, we'd have the same issue. You know, you would have the, the place that was 600, now it's 700. Is the housing affordability being solved? No, you've just pushed up prices 100 grand by allowing people to access their super. So I'm not really a fan of this. I think it's also muddling the waters. Super's got such a bad name in young people's and mm. older people's lives. They hate it. They hate all the changes. They don't understand it. They don't think it's their money. And now all of a sudden you're fiddling with it again. You know, you're creating, mm. is it for retirement or is it for housing? And, you know, and this is the issues <laughs> with super. They they constantly are, are not just making it, they have, they've got the PR problem, super, um, and it's so tempting yeah. isn't it but it's all this money yeah. you know yeah. and i can't save a deposit yeah 
Ah, Recommendation eight is to keep negative gearing. Uh, To quote, the committee recommends that the Australian government maintain current current policy with regard to negative gearing. The committee believes the benefits of this policy provides in the form of lower rents, higher housing supply, diversity of ownership and the efficiency of the tax system outweigh the nominal impact it has on housing prices. And I have to say... Obviously, I'm a little bit conflicted in here, but we did all that. Re- I did all that research anyway back in yep. um, 2019 when it was on the table for the last election. It, you know, it, there's a lot of misinformation in this space and a lot of emotion around it, and there's a lot of you know finger pointing and, and blaming of investors for pushing up, making it difficult for first home buyers. And of course, because investors don't have the same hurdle, i.e., the deposit. You know, if they've got uh, other property they're using as equity, but you know, like I think we've, we've got a rental crisis yep. in this country at the moment. And, you know, if we remember that affordability isn't just about first home buyers, it's about everybody having a safe roof over their head, you know, living in, in a quality place. And I say quality, I think, um, yeah, you know, at, at, at a sound, waterproof, <laughs> watertight, uh, quality of life. That's what I'm yeah. looking for. It, you know, it, the right to live somewhere where it's safe and you have quality of yeah. life. And, you know, individual investors do play a part yeah. in that. And so, and I think also you do get tax deductions for investing in other, you get tax deductions in your income tax return for cost of, you know, things that you have to buy in order to do your job, yep. right? It's the same thing, really, and I think it's very emotive. So I was quite yep. happy to see that the uh, the report sort of is pretty clear on that. Look, I mean, Recommendation- negative gearing, we've, we've, had, we've covered a lot in the conversation. Absolutely. what it, it, it ties in with the appetite for investors to take on debt, which is creating housing, um, rental accommodation for future generations, right? We need investors to be active in the market. You're removing this, you're going to create less investors. The, the reality is if you want to slow down the impact of investors on affordability, what you do is you cut their borrowing capacity. If you go to a bank mm. and you say you can borrow $5 million and they've got $1 million of debt, well, then potentially they can go and spend $4 million on investment properties, right, and get all the negative gearing incentives. If you say to them, no, it's actually four times salary, you can only borrow $2 million, well, then the impact on the market's only a $1 million. And so if you really want to slow down investors, cut borrowing capacities. And this is one thing that wasn't even spoken <laughs> about in the, the report. No, you know, it's you're In right. 2014, you could borrow 10 or 12 times your income. That got cleaned up. It's six or seven times your income now. Ultimately, if you want to slow down the property price growth, which ultimately over many generations will make it more affordable, is you've got to cut borrowing capacity. Similar to like the UK, I think it's like four to 4.5 times. If we transition from six or seven times down to four or five, four or five times over the next two, one or two decades, that would really slow down investors um, and B, slow down price growth. So that's something that if you want to stop investors, cut their borrowing capacities or make mean they've got more deposit they need to require um, and within a certain extent, because that would actually smash first-time investors rather than it wouldn't, uh, the big-time investors would just keep on going. Um, so maybe it's more around the borrowing capacity. Oh, I think that's a good point because we saw how that actually worked yeah. in effect from 2016-17. Yeah. It actually does work. And so, and yeah, and so that's, yes, it was not touched on and you should have made a submission to this report, Chris. Our recommendation number nine was replace stamp duty with land tax. And so ultimately this will actually increase the supply by removing stamp duty as a barrier to transacting. That's that's the argument on that. But once again, it actually inc- uh, reduces the barrier to actually 
participating in the market as well. You know what I mean? You don't have to save that extra money for stamp duty, then you can get in quicker. So it's going to bring forward buyers. But I guess that's a one-off, you know, in terms of a structural change. What are you shaking your head? It's what do you think about this Absolutely. This would be a torpedo in terms of pushing up house prices. Look, from a yeah, mortgage broker's point of view, you think of this as, a lot of people think, oh, mortgage broker is selling debt. No, we, we try to stay pragmatic with this, right? And we know what's happened behind <laughs> the market. This would push first home buyer demand through the roof. It would push upgraders. It would put investors into the market. This change alone mm. would have huge impacts and would increase prices way more than the cost of stamp duty. This cost to transact is actually keeping transaction numbers low. Every time a transaction happens, usually the person buying the property has more debt than the person who currently owns the property mm. and you're creating more debt in the system. Hence why we've got $2 trillion of loans today and, you know, I don't know what, maybe say it's $1.4 trillion not that long ago. So we've created $600 billion more of loans. Um, and so this would create a lot more debt in the system, a lot more transactions, and it would push prices up dramatically. This is If you're a first-time buyer and want to buy in five years' time, this would not help you. This would actually make it much more expensive for you. You'd much better pay stamp duty and save 5% because you're going to pay a hell of a lot more <laughs> in a purchase price in five years. In Maybe tech. the person buying in 12 months' time, if they get in early, they're going to benefit, but all the future generations after that won't, won't benefit from this change. And the thing too about that is that, you know, it, it's like somebody's got down there with a spreadsheet and usually his probability is what's going to happen. They think that this is going to be this sudden rush of supply because that's actually what's stopping retirees from downsizing. But I don't think that is actually the single most important thing. Um, I don't think that's the single block. Uh, no, they, yeah, they may impact their, some. Exactly. Downsizers don't because one, they can't find suitable housing in the area or mm. solutions. There's not enough downsizer suitable apartments that give them a, that they aspire to move down to. They've got a house. Yeah, they've got to maintain it, but they can pay people for that. But, you know, there's not a downsizer apartment that's three be three beds that's big enough that's in a great location for them. That's the first thing, supply. Secondly, their assets test with their pension. If they downsize their house, they have to start paying, you know, they lose their pension or they, mm. you know, um, they have a less asset growing tax-free for future generations, the CGT discount. Well, they can put a big chunk in super. Yeah, there, but it, they, so. and there's yeah. limits on their super <laughs> and things like that, how much they can get tax-free. But maybe they haven't got an income problem anyway. So... There's lots of reasons why downsizers aren't downsizing, um, not just the stamp duty change. So the recommendation 10 is acknowledging the transitional cost of changing from stamp um, stamp duty to land tax. So we won't go into that. It's, you know, because the, there's all this inequity around that. And if you have actually read the New South Wales state government's um, rules around that, and so I think they're basically saying, you know, anything over $3 million you still pay stamp duty is quite complicated. And um, so, you know, that's that's obviously got to be tied in with that. How does that all get, yeah, uh, I agree. you know, pushed through? Recommendation 11, develop a contribution. So effectively ensure that they're spent on what they're meant to be spent on, like infrastructure. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, you know, the MBA actually, that's the Master Builders Association, estimated the impact of selected taxes and charges on the final price of a new home is approximately 150,000 New South Wales, 140,000 in Victoria and 100,000 in Queensland. So, um I think you said earlier, Chris, you want to make houses more affordable. That That's one very easy way to make a significant difference. <laughs> yeah. Makes sense though, right? Like if you're going to allow this high density to happen, um, those money that the, state gov the local government makes should have to go back into improving the street, you know, and planting trees and improving the sewer system and the main street. Give the community a benefit for that density and maybe they're going to be happier if it happens um, mm. and actually accountability and make sure it happens. I think that's what that's all talking about. 
One of the interesting things too, and another quote from this is uh, Mr. Shane Garrett is the chief economist of the NBA. He told the committee and he just basically said that when suppliers constrained, prices rise, and when prices rise, governments get more money out of the property market and the property sector. That is a conflict of interest that they face and it does make a transition to a better tax system and a better tax structure far more difficult, but also, of course, the release of, um, you know, delivery of new housing. So it's, it's it, once again, when you, when you get into these quotes and reading through all these these statements throughout this report the conflict after conflict and the complication of it it's what they call it a gordian knot um and commenting uh on you know on the taxes and charges of new housing the pca i can't remember what the pca stands for basically saying that well in excess of a third and often more than 40 percent of housing construction costs are wrapped up in federal state and local yeah. government taxes surcharges Nothing. levies you know it's just crazy yeah. uh the recommendation 12 was bill to rent which we did talk about in relation to rent to buy um and particularly how policy and taxation etc actually stymies this sector yeah. um so this will change the the landscape for mum and dad investors. And look, I think it's inevitable, really. Um, and we discussed this with Kent actually in episode 215, yeah. if you want to go back and sort of hear more about that. It's an interesting sector and I think we, we will be watching this space. Yeah, there's already talk of governments potentially making changes to the taxes around this. But if absolutely, if you can get institutional money to provide housing um, and rental solutions um, for our society, we need to do it. Um, it will absolutely, if you've got an asset that isn't that special, that's providing a, a rental solution, but it's not providing a long-term what people mm -hmm. really want to buy, you're absolutely going to get hit by this because the build to rent is going to be better quality and better serviced mm -hmm. um, and better built than your type of stuff. So high-density stuff will get smashed by these policies. But, you know, ultimately we need to build these things um, and build to rent is a good solution, I believe. So recommendation 13 around APRA and non-bank lenders and levelling, recommending basically levelling the playing field if this is found to be contributing to price rises. So as a broker, what do you think you of know, that There one? are potential issues with non-banks and APRA and their borrowing capacities and what you can do and their regulation versus other banks. Um, I think they're getting tightened up and that's, um, there was a huge issue, you know, especially in the last 15, 17 times, you borrow a lot more money at non-banks. And so I think regulation across the board across all the banks in terms of capacity and things like that's a good thing but also encouraging more competition and this is why brokers percentage of loans i know this sounds like i'm you know pushing the broker trumpet here um but absolutely more competition in the broker market reduces the cost of interest rates um and that's the all the reports are proving that and if we keep increasing competition in the mortgage market you know not just the big four banks keep wanting more people that will keep um the margin smaller for the banks. Yes, banks make less profit. Who cares about that, really? Um, the consumers at the end of the day. <laughs> Shareholders, probably. <laughs> uh, we obviously people who are listening, but uh, they're probably yeah. at the top end, not the bottom end. The recommendation 14, a lot of it, it's a different bank as the RBA, this one, it's keep house prices out of monetary policy. So basically just reaffirming that the RBA's mandate is, is you know, when they tinker with interest rates, it's, it's not to actually uh, impact house prices. Interesting one. I think it's probably a good idea. I mean, they, you know, if you just try to uh, focus on encouraging short-term demand and, you know, reducing the cost of their mortgage interest means they spend more. So then that pushes the economy for, but not really thinking that's going to impact house prices. Do other things to limit house prices, borrowing capacity, supply, et cetera. You know, stop trying to make it. Because if the government says, oh, we can't drop interest rates, it's house prices will go up. Well, that might push us into a recession and that could push house prices down anyway. So, like, mm. you know, I think that's why I think this is a, a big topic that you should try to split it up. 
Another one, so recommendation 15, we're getting close to the end here, is a timely information flow. Like the federal government basically needs to be kept up to date with state forecasts for population, approvals, completions, so that they can actually coordinate programs. And I think a recommendation like this really just put the spotlight on the fact that we have a bit of a dysfunctional system with our levels of government, not necessarily working in tandem, certainly not necessarily working in coordination. And then recommendation 16, uh, to quote, the committee recommends the Australian government continue to support national housing, finance and investment corporations, concessional loans to infrastructure projects, community housing providers that will unlock new housing supply, particularly affordable housing, yep. with a stronger focus on funding being contingent on supply outcomes. Yep. So, you know, that's sort of the whole thing. What it does not tackle, you know, it's all well and yep. good as I mentioned earlier, to get into the housing market if you're a first home buyer. But if you buy an asset that's actually going to worth, be worth less than what you paid for it because of supply, 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 su you know, solves all the problems. And this is something that individual buyers need to understand. And it's, a, it's, it's challenging because, I, you know, I've been talking with first home buyers through Home Buyer Academy and, and – you know, some do say, I actually don't care what happens to prices after I bought. I just want, I just want security and certainty and have a roof over my head. But if life gets in the way and something suddenly changes and they do need to sell, and I've spoken to some that that have bought and lost money, oh, sure. you know, um, and it's not uncommon, and they don't talk about it because it's not the thing you brag about at the at the barbecue. So, you know, I think that's something. I was, I guess it doesn't it's not talked about enough put it that way and you know clearly it wasn't talked about by anybody who made a submission also no mention of first home buyer grant yep. i couldn't find a mention in there well, it doesn't really surprise me i mean the the money that they pay they don't want to admit that that pushes up house prices they don't want to stitch up the next generation absolutely you know we were warning clients you know 2014 2015 2016 2017 you know don't buy high density you know people come to us with off the plan in say Parramatta or Rosebury, you know, look at the performance of those. Um, they've got backwards in the last two years, you know, quite significantly, let alone the, mm. this potential stamp duty if they had to pay it, um, you know, selling costs, the stress, the opportunity cost, et cetera. Um, and so our listeners will be very versed in that. I think there's, um, yeah, I mean, I do think that's a big issue. I think, um, uh, you know, I think work from home and longer term, the regional infrastructure um, is, a, is a big sort of thing the government needs to do is, is to be encouraging us to move digitally Work from home for the last two years has created a big um, slowdown to what would be even more ridiculous housing unaffordability. If you think about all the people who left for the regions, if they went and still competed on the inner ring suburbs, you would have seen this huge disconnect um, of prices. Yeah, but now, but now you're seeing problems in the regions that they've never anticipated before or never sort of encountered before. You know, and and also there's no mention of the rental crisis. You know, and I guess the reality is that. That's starting to really show up now, and probably when this the submissions were called for this report in September, uh, two thousand twenty-one. You know, a lot of what's been happening since then has actually been very much in that rental area, um, and this is huge pressure on, on regional areas because of that migration. You know, so yeah. So there's a short-term sort of rental issue. There's short-term for the locals who can't afford to buy, etc. Mm. Um, but ultimately, as our city grows and our country grows, you know, I think we need to start spreading out more, right? And um, and uh, otherwise, you're going to have this sort of real pressure cooker and this real density around the city, and um, yeah, and people are going to not be able to commute and all these lifestyle impacts, etc. And so, I do think a longer term sort of how do we spread out our population more along the coast, whether it's airports and trains and um, and allowing people to work from home predominantly, 
um, is these sort of things will help to lower the need to be close to the cities. Yeah. Some of we're talking about um, some of the maybe not naivety is not the right word, but there's I think to some degree there's a bit of a naivety from commentators in the property market that aren't actively in the property yeah. market. And this this is one quote that I just I highlighted to see what you thought of this one. It is incorrect to see the housing market as completely segmented. If builders are prevented from supplying luxury housing, the wealthy buyers who would otherwise buy it purchase middle-level housing instead, which pushes out mid-level buyers who then buy low-end housing. Ultimately, people at the bottom are priced out. Studies of filtering show that new supply results in long chains of turnover with all sectors of the housing market benefiting. I'm not – is it – do you agree that it sort of just sort of is like a domino effect? Because I don't necessarily think that if people are prevented from buying luxury housing and they want it, they go and buy something less than they want. Do you? Oh, oh there's a need <laughs> for housing, right? So, you know, if you um, – like if you could produce um, 300 four-bedroom four townhouses in Mossman, absolutely that would um, – mean that a lot of those buyers who can't afford Mossman are pushing to other suburbs that would go into Mossman. So I do think that, you know, we do need to build housing at all different segments um, because... But what this is saying is that the segments don't really exist because people just go, oh, okay, well, I'll take the next best uh, thing. And I don't think consumers actually behave that way. Yeah, sometimes they won't. They'll obviously become rent investors or they'll do other things, you know, et cetera. Um, yeah, they won't move out of the area they want yeah. to live in. They'll find another way. Yeah. They'll find something else, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, anyway, I just thought that that was a little bit naive, mm, that one. Yeah. But I, I've got my own novel idea. I just think we should cut all first-home buyer grants. We should move – that removes the disincentive for second-hand buyers. So then there's it turns into more of a normal market. You slash taxes on new developments so you don't need to give grants, you know, to, to sort of obscure it. You level the playing field for first-home buyers by insisting that investors cough up a 10% deposit yeah. and they by actually reducing their tax deductions. Yeah. And then the cost of new stock will be reduced and there'll be a secondary market. Yeah. And investors will think twice about competing with first-home buyers on yep. new stock. There you go. I've sold yep. it. Yep. And there's, I think I think you're right. Some of those things are definitely things. But that's common sense, Veronica. Uh, there's too much politics at play here. Um, and it's going to be interesting. So Labor did not agree with this report. Labor are thirty or something to win the election, right? That's six weeks away. Um, so it could be a, an amazing report written that's going to be ripped up and just in the, in the library, you call it. So... But we'll be talking about this lots and lots of episodes because these are issues that really matter and they do impact longer-term growth of the market because if some of these issues can't be solved, then it causes prices in certain pockets to go up, which is what we, um, we always talk about. Awesome. Great episode. Thanks for listening. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey and most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.